Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello, and welcome to the new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. I'm joined today by Neil Kovac, an experienced nonprofit leader with a strong belief in the power of cross-sector partnerships to improve the world. Neil is currently the Global Chief Commercial Officer at the American College of Cardiology, a large, well-known nonprofit medical association. He leads strategic partnerships, revenue growth strategy, and the global corporate relations and innovation teams. I hope I got all that right, and then I pronounced your first name and last name. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. I am excited about our conversation today because medical societies and pharma companies have always been working together for many, many years, many decades, and evolving together with doctors. And also, another reason is that you're the first guest that I'm discussing this topic with. So I'm really curious about the conversation and how pharma executives who are thinking of preparing a launch of the product should think about how to work with medical societies, because many of them are sometimes I find a little bit afraid to even think about that topic. So someone else on the team will do that. So to start with that, and maybe set the foundation and tone for, for what we're going to discuss today, in your view, what is the primary role of medical societies in the overall healthcare ecosystem, and how do they interact with pharmaceutical companies? Yeah. So when I think about medical societies, I think a lot of times people think about who we are. Right, we represent you know at ACC cardiologists, cardiovascular care team members. But to understand medical societies, you really got to think about what we do and why we exist. Right. So ACC, even if we had no members, right, of the organization, we would exist to achieve the mission of the organization, and that's why we come to work every day, and that's why our members join the organization. Right. So our mission is to transform cardiovascular care and improve heart health at ACC. You know, we're trying to create a world where cardiovascular disease is not the number one killer of men and women in every country on earth, right? And medical societies all across different medical therapeutic areas, primary care, they're all focused on the mission of trying to change healthcare delivery and create healthier lives for people. And then how they do that and who we are is, you know, we're medical specialty societies that have members. So at ACC, we have 56,000 members worldwide, right? We represent 90% of practicing cardiologists in the United States, cardiovascular care team members, administrators, nurses, the whole team, right? And so medical societies are a really critical component of anything you're doing in healthcare because we represent the people on the front lines and we're working every day to help those people to create a healthier world for the patients that they're treating. So I think you can't really change anything sustainably within the healthcare ecosystem without proactively thinking about how can the medical societies that are creating the standards in the field, that are representing the leaders in the field, and that are led by the people that are really driving change in the field, uh, part of the solutions that are going to create a healthier world. So I love working for a medical society. I have my whole career. And I think there's a huge opportunity, and I know we'll dive into this today, to really try to be transformational in how private sector and nonprofit organizations like ACC are working together. Because I think there's a huge amount of shared goals that we have, and we've got to do something differently if we're going to change the equation for the direction the healthcare system is going in the United States and around the world. No, thanks for that. And just to share 
when I would be thinking about society, sometimes I would think of them as almost like guardians of scientific information and with the highest level of trust in any specialty where standards are set and where really that, as you said, working towards that mission where education uh, drives uh, outcomes. So I don't know if that term is anywhere used, but I was always thinking like that when I was also on the pharma side. The guardians of the medical galaxy. Maybe, okay, all right, that's also cool. No, no, I agree with you though, Bazi. I mean, medical societies are the organizations that clinicians go to when they're treating their next patient and they wanna know what to do because every patient has their own circumstance, right? And hopefully when you're sitting down there as a clinician, you've got the tools and resources and education and training that you need to do what's right in that particular circumstance. But we're always that group that people come to when they're making those decisions and when they're preparing to see their patients. So 100%. Your analogy is good, yeah. My mother would immediately agree. She's an ophthalmologist, experienced one. And I asked her recently, so are you using this product? And she's like, no. And I said, and why not? She's like, she said, my society doesn't recommend it right now. And that was it. <laughs> so after 35 years of experience in ophthalmology, that was the answer. Like, okay, I totally get it. So speaking of pharma and society, so what are the common goals that both pharma and societies have and where do they diverge? And we can share some of the, I don't know, what's true and what are some of the misconceptions <laughs> as you answer the question that would be really great to hear. You know, I don't think that there is very much that diverges when it comes to the goals of pharmaceutical companies and medical societies, right? I mean, pharmaceutical companies invest billions of dollars in incredible innovation, helping to create a world where people can be free of disease in the future that are not today, right? The things that need to happen in order to achieve those goals are quite aligned with what medical societies do, right? You know, ACC exists to make sure that every time somebody sits down with the patient that they're seeing, that they, as I said, have the tools that they need, but more importantly, that they're making consistent, equitable, well-informed decisions based upon the standards and guidelines and evidence that exist. And we know that we're really far away from that becoming a reality, if you look at the day-to-day circumstances and the evidence of what treatment standards should be and what they are, and things like when new medical guidelines come out and how long it takes them to be adopted. We know that it's generally 20 years between a guideline coming out and that being fully adopted into medical practice. And obviously, there's a huge divergence there in the investment that a pharmaceutical company puts into creating an innovative therapy that's life-changing for people and the commercial equation that takes place if it's going to take 20 years for that to be adopted, right? And I think that intersection is where the collaboration that's really impactful happens between medical societies and pharma. Because if we don't create circumstances in daily practice where people are making more consistent, more well-informed decisions about what their patients need, then we're going to be stuck in this cycle of frustration for clinicians and patients and industry and everybody, because nobody is satisfied with the standard that we're meeting today. I think there's a big alignment in terms of the things we want to do. The critical question and the challenge is, what are we going to do differently to create better outcomes for patients? Because I think we're all feeling like we're beating our heads against the wall a little bit, and we've got to think about doing things differently. Mm -hmm. All right. So Let's talk about it just a little bit on this topic through kind of examples and I'll share a little bit on my side for pharma. So on one side, we have a nonprofit organization, Medical Society, that has a very mission-driven and I found that also people that work at Medical Societies also are united around this very meaningful, impactful causes. You know, they really want to feel that meaning and nonprofits are 
great place for that because they're about collaboration and you know a big mission. So they're a nonprofit organization, the most trusted organization in medicine and driving education, many other things, education forward to improve patient outcomes. On the other side, you have commercial entity, pharma, that, you know, every CEO goes to Wall Street every quarter by quarter, what are the results? So they have pressure, of course, to deliver on revenues and deliver the value for shareholders. And the core of what they do, the value that they create in the marketplace is innovative medicines, which correlates to market being able to pay for it, right? And so I almost felt that part that unites both types of organization is that they're driving improvements in medicine together, right? And where it gets a little bit tricky is because there is, you know, a pressure for CEOs and for pharma companies to deliver on revenues and they may want things to get faster in the guidelines or you don't need, you know, five outcome studies in order to be included in the guidelines. And, you know, in cardiovascular specifically with those, you know, big outcome studies. So they would want to be faster because they felt this pressure. And I feel like societies are there to kind of balance that out and really be objective looking at the data. So I always felt that this was a healthy tension, almost like a little bit of a checks and balances, right? So that we find some middle. Just curious, how do you think about that? And what I just described is what you see. And last thing I'll say, I remember Entresto. So I was at Novartis at the time. I actually worked on Entresto when it was called LCZ. And I remember it had great results. And it was a brainchild of my boss at the time, who's heading cardiovascular development there. And I remember the results were so good. And the drug had the name given to it like faster than planned. And then it entered the market. However, the adoption of the market, because it also went to primary care physicians, so it becomes new standard of heart failure on top of standard of care. And then the adoption of guidelines took much longer, to your point, exactly as you say. And as I was thinking, it's really interesting how these two or three systems work together in order to find the right balance. So I just wanted to ask whether that kind of thinking or as an example makes sense. I'm on the right track with that. Yeah, I think you've highlighted two distinct but also highly interconnected issues. One is the pace of innovation and new therapies that come out and then how those get integrated into guidelines. And the second is how guidelines get implemented. There's a saying, right? Trust comes in on a donkey and out on a freight train, right? And for a medical specialty society, taking the time to do things right and to have the right evidence base and to put the guidelines out in a way so they're really rigorous and robust and also so that we build the tools and resources so they can be utilized when they come out. That's important, but we've put a huge amount of effort in to getting guidelines out more rapidly and also updating them more rapidly. Because that's the frustration is you come out with a guideline, you can't wait five years for another guideline. They've got to be updated on an annual basis and they've got to be iterative and updated annually as new evidence comes out. So we're committed to doing that. We're doing that. All of the new guidelines that we put out are using that methodology. Is it going to meet the expectations of every pharmaceutical executive you know, that ever exists? No. But is it a lot better than it has been in the past? No doubt about it. Right. And there's been huge enthusiasm about that. But that's not going to solve the issue that you raised around Entresto, and it's not going to solve the issues that I was raising earlier about clinical practice. So I think there's two things here. One, from a pharmaceutical perspective, if you look at that Entresto example, things moved quickly there. But the question really is, was the investment made to build the market and heart failure so that when Entresto got into the market, doctors were thinking and understanding about the burden of heart failure, that heart failure has a worse prognosis than cancer does? when somebody is diagnosed with heart failure? Is it top of mind for clinicians when they're sitting down with their patients about what the evidence is today and what they need to know and what's the titration that needs to take place? I think there was a lot more 
that everybody that was involved then from a medical specialty society side and certainly from a pharmaceutical perspective says, we didn't build the knowledge base and the market in that space to allow the drug to be successful even after the evidence and the guidelines were updated. We're all working and certainly companies like Novartis are working and you look at their whole reorganization now, it's sort of built around solving this problem for let's make sure that there's awareness in the marketplace before the drug exists, right? So that's an obligation that pharmaceutical companies have to be investing in organizations like ACC and others all across the spectrum with primary care and specialty to make sure we're educating doctors and training doctors years before a product hits the marketplace. One other thing I would say is we've got to put programs in place that give tools and resources to people that are easier for them to use. Because patients are so complex and they have so much multimorbidity. And the error that pharmaceutical companies make and that ACC makes, the same thing, is thinking we're going to solve some individual problem and not solve the delivery system and the information system for medical knowledge in a way that people are getting the information that they need, when they need it, how they want to receive it so that they can make the right decision. I'm actually glad I mentioned that as an example because I wanted to ask you about the opportunities to work together. And I think interesting, given that its launch had happened quite some time ago, and now it, actually the drug became established. And I remember there was this gap of a couple of years where there was you know, change of strategy. I was an artist at the time, but change of strategy in order to kind of rework the launch again. And then, then it worked, and now you know, it's a big drug. It's a $4 billion something drug. And it's you know, pretty much everyone in cardiology, a lot of primary care doctors see it as standard. We're now 2023. With some learnings from the example I mentioned, how should pharma companies think about the opportunities to educate clinicians prior to launch and during the launch? What are some of the best practices and the best channels to do it together with medical societies? You know, I think you need to approach things at a high level from a therapeutic area perspective. Let's take an example like cholesterol control, right? The reality is today, For somebody who has a heart attack, a huge proportion of them are not even getting a lipid value taken 12 months after they have a heart attack, and they're not on a basic statin 12 months after they have a heart attack. So we're so far from creating an ecosystem where people are driving their LDLs to below 70 if they're a secondary prevention like the new guidelines recommend, right? That we've got to really be creating alarm bells in the field to say, hey, We have a crisis of cardiovascular disease driven by a lack of urgency in how we're treating the risk factors that are driving cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And as a clinician, you have an obligation to be optimizing the health outcomes for your patient and understanding, using the tools and resources that exist, what their risk is and how you can improve their long-term outcomes. And obviously, clinicians are committed to doing that. But the problem is we've had so much innovation in cardiology and in healthcare, right? In terms of new therapies, new devices, new technology, but nothing has changed the experience of a person walking into a doctor's office and then the technology infrastructure that a doctor is operating with as they're walking into their clinic every day, right? The gap in change between the incredible innovation that now exists in the field and how much innovation has actually taken place in the day-to-day practice of a clinician is huge, right? And we have to solve that problem using technology. You've got to be understanding the health status of your patient longitudinally and not just every six months when they sit down in your office using technology. And you've got to be consuming education and training as a clinician 
longitudinally on a daily basis so that you can stay up to speed with the huge myriad of things that you have to understand as a clinician, as evidence is constantly evolving. So I think technology has a huge role to play in the delivery of clinical practice on a day-to-day basis, and also in how we can make the most of a busy clinician's time that's more burnt out than ever to give them the tools and resources that they need to make informed decisions. And I think that's why Evermed is a company that exists right place, right time in terms of what you do and how you approach things and why partnerships between ACC and Evermed are so critical to solving that training component that is such a huge gap still today. As you were sharing that example of, you know, like beyond the pill or beyond the drug, also challenges that exist. And I was actually leading at some of my last row in pharma, I was leading digital therapeutics. So I was looking at that problem every day and looking at the companies who solve it, asking myself, should pharma solve this problem or should partner and all kinds of things. And it always reminded me, you know, one of my best friends is an international cardiologist. And at some point he started building his own practices, like 12 practices now in, in New Jersey, which is across the river. We both live on the west side of the city. And I was telling him, I remember four or five years ago, this technology and that technology and can do this and monitoring. He always looks and he's like, I would highly suggest that you come over to some of my practices and take a look a little bit of, you know, where the patients are, where's their state, the challenges that they have. There's like a huge gap when I hear you speak about the technology and what I deal with every day. And, you know, I worked at Sinai, I work in smaller practices, I work in mid-sized community hospitals. It was very interesting. It just reminded me of those conversations. And yes, technology is moving faster than human beings mostly in our behavior. And now, you know, especially with GPT, those kind of gap between how fast we can move and how fast technology moves is going to be even more shown. I'm glad you mentioned the LDL example. Hey, I just realized I have very high LDL, so I had to do something about it last week. And two, I'm thinking, okay, so let's say I'm a pharma executive and now I have LDL lowering drugs. And it's one year from launch, maybe one year and a half. And usually what I've seen in pharma companies is always a little bit late with pre-launch because they're waiting for phase three to read out. And then there is only 12 months left until the market. So there is always not enough time to prepare launch. So how do I think about what do I do now with ACC cardiology societies now that I've shown that I have results in primary, secondary prevention? Where do I start? Should I talk to the society executive? Should I form a team around it? Should I... First, think of conferences or think of year-long engagement. Let's say that I'm new in this area. I haven't been traditionally a company that is a big player in cardiology. You know, I think that increasingly the key sort of triad of partnerships that needs to exist is between pharmaceutical companies that make innovative therapies, medical societies that create the standards in the field and represent the leaders and frontline practicing clinicians on a day-to-day basis, And then technology organizations that are really changing how care is delivered, leveraging technology. And so as we're thinking about how to affect change holistically, whether you're talking about hypertension or LDL or titration of heart failure therapies or anticoagulation for AF, anything in cardiology, you know, we're thinking about what are the technology networks that exist nationwide that are leveraging novel solutions for informing clinicians in seamless ways that don't create work for them about the gaps in day-to-day practice that they have and how they can close those gaps. And then we're building our tools and resources and intelligence and guidelines and guidance documents and pathways and training and clinician patient tools, all of that at the point of care using those technology companies. So I think that's the model of change for the future because it's the only way, you know, we're not going to pilot our way out of this frustrating scenario that we're in. We've got to get to some really scaled 
solutions where we've got the right evidence at scale, at the point of care, using technology. And I think that the three parties are really critical for getting there. You've got to have the innovative therapies and you've got to have the standards that are being set and the tools and resources that are being developed, but you've got to have it integrated at the point of care in a way that's really seamless for somebody who's busy in a day-to-day practice. And I think that's where the focus has got to be. If you're a pharmaceutical executive, how do you form those partnerships? So you have the knowledge and then you have the dissemination mechanisms. So it's actually going to be utilized. Mm-hmm. Right. So are there any examples that you can share? We don't need to name the companies, but you know where things were done right. And we mentioned Entresto and the challenge that community was not ready. The awareness of the issues in heart failure, which has kind of been treated the same similar way, chronic heart failure for many years. So doctors were not ready for understanding the really gaps and then adopting the therapy. So that took some time. So that's an example of market readiness, education, purely focused on pharma, not even being ready to think about technology at that point. Because person doing that is like, okay, I can't even solve now the problem of awareness of my drug, let alone integrated technology. So companies are doing it better than other companies that you see across the board. What are they doing differently right now in 2023, preparing the launch? Yeah, so I think it's about creating all of the different types of tools and resources that you need to be successful, right? So you've got to have the clinician education. You've got to have patient education. You've got to have clinician and patient resources. So when the clinician's sitting down with a patient, they've got something that they can use to solve the problems that that patient is facing. And then you've got to have implementation programs that are establishing a baseline of what the reality is today in terms of the clinical care continuum, setting goals for what those should be based upon the evidence that exists, and then tracking on an ongoing basis how you're changing the reality of adherence to guidelines on a daily basis. And those are the best partnerships we've seen, where the tools are developed in a holistic fashion so that everybody has what they need to be successful, who's part of the care team, including the patient and their caregiver. And then leveraging technology, we are training people differently at home during their busy clinical practice while they're traveling, right? They can get the training that they need when they want to receive it, how they want to receive it, and it's concise and it's got the information they need. And then we're pulling through it in daily practice with the practice tools that they need integrated into the EMR at the point of care so that you're pulling through. You know what to do through the knowledge that you're creating and conveying to the doctor, but then you're giving it to them in terms of a tool at the point of care in a way that they can use it seamlessly. So, When you say tool, what do you mean by tool? Can you just give examples so audience can understand? You know, we've worked hard through the technology partnerships we have to have dashboards developed by ECC you know, that leverages the risk calculators and the different tools and resources we have so that when you sit down with a patient, you can see the gap that exists. And then increasingly, you can see what's the outcome change for that patient going to be if you pull different levers for optimizing their care in a better fashion. So there's a lot of different really innovative technology companies that are rolling out solutions like this. We work with a few different companies. We work with Paradigm Life Sciences is one group that has a huge outpatient network of practices that we work closely with. We work with a really cool company called Health Pals. That's one of the companies that builds dashboards like that. But there's many others that we work with. For us, it's about what's the problem we're trying to solve, where are the clinicians and patients we're trying to reach, and then what's the network we need to reach into, 
and what's the technology we need to leverage to get there. And we, we built it in a customized way so it has the best impact. Yeah. I mean, those are powerful. Just I had an example last week. So went for an annual, I had a position assistant to look at everything in LDL, 160, but then they plug in the calculator that you just mentioned, plug in the calculator to look at all the data. I said, look, based on what I see here, your risk of having a cardiovascular event turning 46 this year is 1.5%, even though LDA is high, with LGA, with everything else taken into consideration, I wouldn't suggest right now starting with statin. That's the overall recommendation. And you know, he stood behind that because he also had a very powerful tool powered by <laughs> outcome trials and data to say something like that. And I thought, wow, this is actually, I knew about those tools and everything, but it's really powerful that at many different levels in healthcare, you actually can, with a quite high level of certainty, make a recommendation that that was the right decision to be made. And just having those tools in the right place, right time, I think is key. And then in terms of some specific tactical ways that pharma can drive education, Let's say, again, I'm launching LDL, maybe there's a new mode of action or maybe a new administration route. Conference is the first thing that comes to my mind to a pharma marketeer. It's like, there is a conference, I need a booth, I need to have a lecture, I need to engage, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of the other things that you think pharma executives could think about? Are there any specific partnerships they could think about through the network that societies have and all the tools that you mentioned and your own existing partnerships on the technology side? and also engaging doctors throughout the year with any channels that societies have. So how should they tactically think a little bit about this? I mean, I think it has to be an omni-channel approach where you're meeting people holistically throughout the year in person through major conferences like ACC, right? We've got 20,000 people gathered, leaders in cardiology, huge momentum and focus around doing something differently in the field of cardiology during the three days of a conference, Right. But then people are going back into their daily busy lives and they're burnt out and they're worried about a million different things, you know, inside and outside of their professional life. So we've got to be supporting solutions that meet the needs of doctors, just like we meet the needs of consumers in any other space that we think about. Right. So doctors don't have different expectations for how technology should integrate with their daily life. And I think that's their expectation when it comes to education and training. Right. They think that they should have education in the easiest way possible, focused on the things that they want to learn about. And then I think what's really cool about what Evermed does is the algorithms inform doctors about things that they might not have thought of being interested in, but they're really interested in learning based upon the huge depth of information we have. And that's why partnerships like ACC and Evermed is so amazing, because we have this depth of information. We know everything about what every clinician is engaging with on all the ACC assets, right? But we're a medical specialty society. We're incredibly good at creating standards in cardiology and providing high quality education. We are incredibly bad at being a leading technology company because that's not who we are and it's not why we exist and, it's, and we're not, we're subscale, even as a big medical society. So the technology and the algorithms and the insights and the information that you have combined with our ability to develop knowledge, that's the recipe that doctors, nurses, administrators, physicians, assistants, everybody's expecting, right? And so I think we need to hold ourselves to the same standard that any consumer-facing technology company would in terms of the tools and resources we're providing to clinicians. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the big trends also when it comes to how doctors consume information and one of the reasons why Aramid and ACC partnered is a trend of convenience and, and ability to access 
information in short bursts of time, five to 15 minutes throughout the year in between conferences, on the go, in between two patient visits, you know, in the afternoon, et cetera. And said that kind of Netflix, Spotify, YouTube reality we live in and where technology fits into our busy lives. And I'm really a big believer that societies that figure out how to engage members all year long and deliver that massive amount of education that they have in a way that is digestible and that really helps doctor find the next piece of critical information or gap that exists in knowledge are going to also create massive opportunities for innovators in the field, whether it's pharma companies or tech companies who have new innovative products, who are for-profit organizations, who want to be in front of those doctors in the same way they want to be during the conference in front of the doctor, but do it 365 days a year. But even even more efficient way, because algorithms understand very well in the personalized level what people want and where they may be ready to receive the information, whether it's sponsored or not sponsored. So 100% believing that future. So be interesting to have this conversation a couple of years from now to see how fast it happens. I have zero doubt that it's already happening and that it will happen. The question is how fast it will become a mainstream. And I want to applaud really ACC for you know taking a leadership and innovator role in this. And for something that I truly believe in just a very few years, it will be a standard. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing, Bazi, to keep in mind is the expectations of younger clinicians, right? Mm -hmm. Younger clinicians coming into practice, we know that, first of all, they want to be part of organizations that are doing inspirational work. But we know that work-life balance is critical to their perspective, that this idea that you're going to you know, work yourself to death 24-7 and be happy with your career is just not something that inspires people going into the field of cardiology today. It's also, you know, we have a big focus on diversifying the field of cardiology, and you've got to create balance for people in the field if we're going to achieve that goal. And so it's table stakes. For a 32-year-old cardiologist coming out of interventional cardiology training that's got a young family that is driven as hell, but you know has no time for anything, that's just table stakes to give them snippets of information that they're interested in informed by algorithms. Like It would be ridiculous for them to think about doing things any other way, right? It's so disruptive because this is not how it's been done. But if you put it in the context of a young person coming into the field of healthcare today, it also seems so obvious that it's the way that things need to be. Yeah, I read somewhere that digital natives are more than 70% of the physicians right now in the U.S., meaning that as they were growing up, everything was digital. They all use digital tools. So that's really interesting. And then many of them don't see, for example, reps anymore. In the U.S., the latest numbers are 50 to 70% don't even see reps anymore. So they really self-educate through content, through technology, through algorithms. I started to use that term lately, self-educating through content, because it just really explains <laughs> what was being done and how all of us kind of accept new products in our lives, even as consumers, is really self-educate your content and then talk to a human being potentially who knows a little bit more on the topic on the sales side or something. Now, I know that a big area of your focus is global and making sure that reduction in death from cardiovascular causes focused on in the U.S., but globally with their whole myriad of challenges, right? So I wanted to ask in the context of pharma launches and U.S. versus global any guidance that you have for pharma companies, how to think of that? Yeah, I just think it's incredibly critical for pharmaceutical companies and medical specialty societies both to be approaching things with a global first mindset when it comes to their strategy. People are more and more similar all around the world. 
There's incredible innovation and incredible work happening in New York City and in, you know, Kigali, Rwanda, right? And everywhere in between. And we've got to be creating networks and building solutions that meet the needs of clinicians in any of these circumstances. If you look at cardiovascular disease, the unfortunate scenario is after decades of decline in the United States, it's on the rise again, right? And if you look at the social determinants of health and the discrepancies and inequities in care, it's projected to increase drastically and not decrease now. So we're at a seminal moment in the United States where inequities in care are going to drive a drastic increase in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And that's the same problem being faced all around the world in low- and middle-income countries, where now for decades we've seen a drastic increase in cardiovascular disease. Health systems are hugely ill-equipped to meet that challenge. There's a global goal at WHO. I was just in the United Nations at a hearing around this two days ago. 30% reduction in premature mortality from non-communicable diseases by 2030, seven years from now. The goal was set in 2011. We've made no progress, right? And so the onus is on all of us across all sectors, NGOs, academia, private sector, governments, to be coming together and finding new ways to collaborate. And if we're going to do that, we've got to build solutions globally. So I know the U.S. is a big market. I got my MBA. I get how numbers work. But I still believe that if pharma companies are not thinking about things in a global first mindset and figuring out how a solution and a strategy is going to work in the U.S. and China and in Brazil, as in Saudi Arabia and in South Africa, from inception, all you're going to do is get to a point of frustration where you've got subscale, inadequately integrated solutions. And maybe even more importantly, you're not surfacing the things that are happening all around the world to solve problems for your company because you're so focused in just one country. So that's our approach at ACC. And I think pharma companies have to take that approach. And I've got to say, I see it moving the opposite direction sometimes because of the commercial pressure on these companies to deliver and because of the size of the market. But I think people are thinking small if they're thinking that they're going to solve the commercial problems of their organizations by focusing on just the biggest markets or most developed markets in the world. You want to hit your quarterly earnings now and in the future, and you've got to be investing with a global mindset if you're going to do that. Yeah, you just mentioned some of the restructurings. And then, yeah, I've seen like, focus on the US, 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 because it's 45% of the overall, like 1.2 trillion of prescription market. 45% is US. There's a lot of focus there. All right. So this is a great conversation. And uh, what I like to do with my guests is ask them a few like rapid fire questions, short questions, short answers about themselves. <laughs> so the listeners get to know you, Neil, just a little bit better. So the first question is, what's your favorite industry buzzword? in 2023? Got to be synergy, right? Everybody says we've got to have synergy in the efforts that we're driving, you know, between all of the people that are working in healthcare. And I just think, what the hell does that mean? You know, you've got to really unpack these things and figure out how we're actually going to build things from the ground up differently. A lot of talk about synergy. As you dive into what somebody means when they say that, you often are left disappointed. Yeah. I often ask when I hear more abstract words, I ask people what do they mean by that because usually 10 people have 10 different interpretations. <laughs> and uh, is there any book over the past 12 months that you came across that you really like? How to Build a Unicorn, is that what it's called? The innovation book? Just about being market solution focused from the ground up when you're building a product and that you've got to really think about how it's going to be utilized in the marketplace, including the commercial model that you're going to utilize as you're starting to build the product 
rather than at, you know, building the product and then figuring that out afterwise. You know, that's a big thing for medical societies, obviously for-profit organizations. You know, you've got to have the end consumer, what their environment is, what their commercial capacity is, how your product's going to fit into their daily life up front and not build things and figure that out afterwards. So that's a good one, I thought. Gotcha. And then who in the world of pharma or medical societies would you most like to take for lunch? There's this guy, I can't pronounce his last name, right? But uh, he's a cardiologist, Sec, who has this Verve Therapeutics. That's this one-shot gene editing cholesterol treatment. You know, genetics, you know, I have family members impacted by cancer. And when you work in cardiology and then you spend years interacting on a day-to-day basis with how oncology treatment works, you're left really astounded by how from day one, People are like, well, did you do the genetic sequence to figure out what the circumstance is before we tailor a treatment strategy here? And then in cardiology, they're like, what is the genome? You know, it's like, and how do, what does that have to do with cardiology? You know, it's like, these are the top killers, you know, and now you see all of this innovation happening around genomics and cardiology. And I think the innovations that we've seen and the pathways that we've seen be effective in oncology and these other areas, we're going to see that same bang for your buck in cardiology as we start to do things differently. So, yeah, that's very cool. I, when, as I said, said, high LDL result. I started to dig deeper. I went into medical education. I went to AC anywhere. So trying to understand lipoprotein little A and the gene that impacts it and all the other tests I need to do because I wanted to have a little bit more precision <laughs> treatment if needed. So glad you mentioned it. So totally understand. And then what's the one sentence advice you would give to anyone entering the world of medical societies right now? We have got to do things differently in terms of how we're thinking about partnerships for medical specialty societies, the way things have been done are not making a difference. I think we need to lean hard on technology companies that are committed to impacting clinical practice in a meaningful way, and then show that you can use technology to change the paradigm of how people are getting treatment. This idea that we're going to continue existing in this world where we submit for grants and a portal and then get it and then produce some education and put it on the website or produce some tools and then hope that people will utilize them in their daily practice, that's just ridiculous, right? I mean, we've got to be showing that that technology is capable of creating urgency around risk factors and treatment for cardiovascular disease or any other therapeutic area, right? So I think anybody going and working for a medical specialty society should be as focused on educating themselves from a technology perspective as they are in their area of professional focus and whether it's clinical or business or anything else. Great. And lastly, where can people find you online? You can find me on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. Mm-hmm. Try to stay updated, You know, update people about what we're thinking, what's going on, what's happening at ACC. I went to India in uh, January and I was astounded to put out there, you know, hey, does anybody know some disruptive digital health companies in India within the network? And I met like 25 companies as a result of putting it out there. I'm a big nobody, right? But it just shows that the network and interest of people out there is there if you put it out there and get a conversation started. So yeah, that's the best place to find me and engage with me. Give me some ideas how to use my LinkedIn. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. And also for listeners thinking of launching uh, pharma products on how to work with medical societies. So thank you, Neil, for joining. Great. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed, 
Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.